Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Good evening. Thank you for being here tonight. I know it's a Monday night, and you could be a lot of places, but I appreciate your presence and being here for this series of lessons and this, and this gospel meeting, and looking forward to our time together as we study the Word of God. The world in the first century was a lot like our world is today. They didn't have iPads, iPhones, or Corvettes, but there really wasn't much difference between the way they lived and the way that we live, the circumstances surrounding their world. It was much like our world. They had their different classes. They had the rich. They would have elaborate dinner parties. They lived in beautiful homes. And they had servants. There was the poor class, and they made up the majority of the population. They were the working class individuals, and they pretty much did the grunt work that went on in the Roman society. They had entertainment. There were the Olympic and the Isthmus Games and chariot races, and the fights in the stadiums with the gladiators. They had their different religious beliefs. There was the public religion, and then there were the, the sort of, you know, the various groups in private religion where individuals did the best that they could to garner the favor of the gods. Christianity was born into that world in the days of the Roman Empire. And when you read the book of Acts, especially, you see that Christians, they changed their world. The New Testament tells us that Christianity started in Jerusalem on the first Pentecost following the resurrection. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus gave them their marching orders. They were to begin in Jerusalem and then cover all of Judea and then Samaria and then go to the uttermost parts of the world. And as you read the book of Acts, Acts 1 and verse 8 serves as an outline for exactly what they did. When you read the book of Acts, you see these individuals preaching this message and carrying it throughout the world. And they're convicting and they're converting people into this religion known as Christianity. But to study the New Testament and couple that study with a study of the Roman Empire, two facts emerge to the surface. Number one, everything was set up for Christianity to lose. They were not highly educated, they were not large in number, and they were doing something different, which was a no-no in the Roman Empire. And the second thing is, they turned the world upside down. You read throughout the book of Acts, and they start with this small nucleus of disciples in Jerusalem. The first time the gospel's preached, Acts 2 and verse 41 says about 3,000 souls were added to their number. By the time you get to Acts chapter 5 and verse 5, Luke says the number is up to 5,000, just counting the men. And then he just stops with the specifics and he begins to say that there were multitudes of individuals who turned and obeyed the gospel. By the time you get to Acts 17, when the Christians arrive at Thessalonica, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, there's this statement that's made. These that have turned the world upside down have come here as well. Now, it was not meant as a compliment But the reality was that these Christians, they were not turning the world upside down. They were actually standing the world right side up. They were making things right, and they were making a difference. When we study what they did and how they overcame, it's fuel for us. It's encouraging because they had a mixed bag of results. Sometimes great numbers of individuals became Christians, but it wasn't without persecution. 
In Acts chapter 3 and in Acts chapter 4, the Sanhedrin just about tries to silence them. In Acts chapter 5, God executes the first recorded instance of church discipline in the New Testament church. Many of their talented preachers were executed right off. Think about Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and James in Acts chapter 12. And yet, they just couldn't be stopped. We should pause in reading the book of Acts and see it not merely as the book of conversion, as conversions, and it is that. And not simply a history book for many of the congregations who later receive epistles throughout the New Testament, because it is that as well. But when we see how they succeeded with all of the odds against them and we think about the current cultural climate in which we find ourselves, the question that needs to rise to the surface for us is how on earth did they do it? Because they did. You know, there was no nightly news in their day, but if there would have been every news station, every social media outlet, Whether they were for it or against it, wouldn't be able to help themselves but to talk about this group of individuals known as Christians who have been throughout the world preaching the gospel and are coming to a town near you. They turned their world upside down. And the good news for us is this. We can read of what they did in the book of Acts and where we see ourselves duplicating their behavior. We're encouraged to persist and to go forward. And where we find that we might have gotten off track and gotten off course, it's a corrective for us to say, Let's put first things first and be the people that God wants us to be. If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Acts and you can turn to Acts chapter two in the beginning if you would like. What I want to do tonight is talk about how the early church turned the world upside down. What did they do? You can mention a number of things and maybe as you listen to this sermon, you'll say, well, you could have mentioned this and you could. And that's true. All the major points tonight will come from some portion of the book of Acts. I want to raise five things to the surface that I see throughout the book of Acts that will help us as we try to do the very same thing in our time. I want this to encourage us as Christians and also to be an invitation to those that are not Christians to be on the winning side, to be on God's side as he tries to right the world, at least to the degree that he can until he sets it on fire and takes us home with him. How can we turn the world upside down? What did they do in the first century? And what do we need to do in our current generation? Let's study tonight from the book of Acts and see what they did. Number one, they preached the gospel. The early church began with what you might call a gospel meeting. In Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, they were all gathered together in one place, and the Holy Spirit descended on them with these fiery tongues, and they began to speak in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. And when they're questioned about their ability, you remember remember Peter stands up with the 11 in Acts chapter 2, 11 through 14, and he corrects these men, and then he proceeds to preach this sermon. The punchline to Peter's sermon is in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made this same Jesus, whom you've crucified, Lord and Christ. That's how they did it. They turned the world upside down through preaching the gospel. Now, that doesn't surprise you, and it doesn't surprise me, really, because we come to gatherings like this, and we expect to hear preaching. We assemble on the first day of the week, and one of the things that we expect to hear is the word of God expounded, preached, taught, and applied to our lives. But go to anybody in the first century. And really go outside of these walls and talk to anybody who does not share our religious faith. And if you were to ask them, how do you change the world? The very last thing that they would say is through the proclamation of a message. But that's what God chose. For the preaching of the cross is to those that perish foolishness. 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. As it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom knew not God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message that we preach to save those that believe. The Jews were after a sign and the Greeks sought after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. And that's what changed their world. And it'll change ours. What you find in Acts chapter two is hardly an anomaly. That was not the only time this happened. Would you notice throughout the book of Acts how often it said that preachers and apostles and teachers went throughout that first century world carrying this message that they believed Jesus was the son of God. They were in a world that was predominated. It was overwhelmed with bad news. And the Christians said, we've got great news for you. This life is not all there is. Your sins have been atoned for. There's a better place than here right now. Your station in life is not all that the world has to offer. God has something better in store. The word most most often translated preach in the book of Acts is the Greek word euangelizo, and it means to share good news. But when used in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, it carries a special significance. The preaching of the good news about Jesus Christ. Would you notice some of these in the book of Acts? Acts chapter 5. Go to Acts chapter 5 and notice verse 42. This is right after the death of Ananias and Sapphira and also after the apostles had been persecuted for continuing to preach when the Jewish authorities told them not to. They were persecuted in verse 41. And they rejoiced as they departed from the council that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And then verse 42, daily in the temple and from house to house, they cease not to teach and to preach that Jesus is the Christ, not just Acts 5 and verse 42. When pressed on what they should emphasize and what they should put forward, look at Acts chapter 6 and verse 4. Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, the apostles say, we will give ourselves over to prayer and the ministry of the word. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, the apostles are left in Jerusalem, but those that are scattered abroad, they went everywhere preaching the message about Jesus Christ. Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 14 and verse 7, when they go to Derby and Lystra and Iconium, Acts 14 and verse 7 says, even though they attempted to stone these men, one verse early in verse 6, they preached the word. It's what the early church did. It's how they turned the world upside down through the proclamation of the message about Jesus Christ. They preached the good news and it changed people's lives. They brought the gospel into the hearts of people who desperately needed to hear that reality, the reality of their sins, but also the good news that Jesus has come. He has died for them and he's been raised from the dead and all who come to God by faith in him can be saved. I saw a list from some website and they had this list of people that they claim changed the world in the 20th century. There were some, just about anybody you could think of that they had on this list. They had Muhammad Ali. They had J.K. Rowling. They had, oh, they had various people from various fields. They had, they had Malcolm X, and they, they had everybody on this list. There was not one preacher on the list. I don't mean just in churches of Christ. There was not one preacher on the list, period. Neither was there anybody who made the list merely because they practiced Christianity or claimed to. They had inventors and scientists and athletes, not one not one individual who claimed faith in Jesus Christ on the list. But that doesn't surprise us, does it? Because what the world thinks is success and what the world often ascribes as what really makes a difference 
often undermines what God views as valuable and what really makes a difference. The way the Hebrew writer says it in Hebrews eleven thirty eight, as he lists these lists of faithful individuals who would be familiar to us, but maybe not so familiar in their day. He says of whom the world was not worthy because they were really making a difference for us. We need to keep this one idea central. They preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. They heralded the message of Jesus Christ. And we don't need to back up from it. We might be tempted in our day to say, surely there are other things we can do to make a more immediate impact. Do you see everything else that's going on in the world? Maybe we should busy ourselves in these areas and in these emphasis, but we do so to our own peril. There is one thing that the church of Christ can do that other institutions cannot, and that is preach the gospel. And so we need to focus our efforts there. Paul told Timothy to preach the word in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2, 1 Peter 4 and verse 11. Peter says, if any man speak, let him speak as the very oracles of God. These Christians believed in this message and whether they were beaten, whether they were persecuted, whether they were driven from home, they took that message with them. We'll turn our world upside down to the degree that we do the same. Maybe we bought into this idea that people just aren't as hungry as they used to be for the gospel. I don't believe that. I believe that people simply need to hear it again. Not something new, but a familiar truth that has been recently forgotten. We need to remind people of their desperate need, whether they acknowledge it or not, and bring the gospel to them. A man named George McCormick found gold in Canada's Yukon Territory in 1896, and he became a millionaire. Christians in the first century found gold in the gospel, and they became global missionaries. You could not convince these individuals that there was anything else in the world more important than taking the gospel to their friends, to their neighbors, to their enemies. And that's how they changed their world. That's how they turned the world upside down. And we can do it in our generation. Now, here's number two. The church in the book of Acts turned the world upside down through their powerful prayers. Before they ever became the church, you might say, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, as they're waiting for the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit, Acts 1.14 says they were gathered together in a group and they were assembled and they were offering up prayers steadfastly to God. When people were baptized on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 41 says those 3,000 gladly received the word and they were baptized. The next thing they were taught, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the fellowship, in the breaking of bread. But the last thing that Luke mentions is they continued steadfastly in prayers. Now, maybe you remember this. This happened a few years ago. People still say it now, but it was very popular. I would say 2019, 2018, and maybe at the top of 2020, there was this sort of mocking about this phrase, thoughts and prayers. You remember that. People were saying things like, well, we've got bigger problems, whether there was a mass shooting or something to that degree. And what people meant, prayer won't help anybody. You need to stop praying and you need to really put some action behind those words. If you claim to be religious, prayers just aren't enough. There may be times when joined together with our prayers, God requires some action on our part. But may we never accept the lie that prayer in and of itself is not an action. Prayer in and of itself, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11, Paul says, helping me by your prayers. Prayer is help. And we should never fix our mouths to say, well, the situation's beyond us. All we can do now is pray. No, prayer is not a last line of defense. It's a first line of defense. And that's what these Christians believed. They prayed about everything. That was their answer to everything they faced. You read throughout the book of Acts, and this is what you find. When they were persecuted in Acts chapter 4, They gathered together in the upper room 
and they prayed. Acts chapter 4, 25 through 31. When they imprisoned Peter and James and they beheaded James, Acts chapter 12 and verse 5 says, they made prayer without ceasing to God on Peter's behalf. Acts chapter 12 and verse 12 says that they were all gathered together in Mary's house. And guess what they were doing? They were lifting up prayers to God. The early Christians believed that the answer to their every dilemma as a congregation and as a church globally was to bow their heads and lift up their voices in prayer to God. They trusted in. Listen, prayer says two things about us. If we pray to God, we are acknowledging two truths every time we pray. When we pray, number one, we are saying that we believe and we know that we are not powerful in and of ourselves to change our own circumstances. Prayer acknowledges human weakness and frailty and says, I need divine reinforcement to help me. You remember what David said in Psalm 61, 1 and 2? When my heart is faint and I'm overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. David is saying, I can't do it. Prayer says, I believe Jesus in John 15, 5. Without me, you can do nothing. That's the first thing that prayer acknowledges. Every time you pray, every time I pray, we acknowledge we can't do it on our own. But there is a second truth. Every time we pray, we acknowledge not only that we are powerless in and of ourselves to change our circumstances, but we believe that God will help us in our circumstances. When we pray, we're saying Psalm 65 in verse two. Oh, to you who hears prayers, where all flesh come. We're coming because we can't do it, but we believe that he can and he will. Jesus told his disciples in Mark eleven twenty-two to 24, If you have faith like a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, be removed from here to there and nothing will be impossible for you. All things that you desire in prayer, believe that doesn't mean it's a blank check for every prayer that we desire. There are parameters biblically praying within the will of God. But it is to say, if you petition God about things in accordance with his will and in confidence, trusting that God hears you, God is working on those things and you can bank on that. And the early church turned the world upside down through their powerful prayers. Can you imagine being a Roman centurion, a Roman guard in the first century, and you had just whipped up on Paul and Silas? Or you worked for the Jewish Sanhedrin, and you had just whipped up on Peter and John, and you told them, I don't want to hear you praying anymore. I don't want to hear you preaching anymore. And you just follow them back to their little group meeting. And you peek your head into the assembly in the house where they're assembled, and you see all of them sort of gathered around in the circle with their heads bowed. And you might assume in that moment that their heads are bowed in defeat and in despair, but you would be sincerely mistaken. Because their heads wouldn't be bowed in defeat and in despair. Their heads would be bowed in confidence, not defeated by their enemies, but plugging into divine aid. And if you creep in just a little closer, you might even hear them praying for you. First Timothy chapter two and verse eight was taken seriously by the early church. Paul said, I would that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. And that's what they did. It's our custom in churches of Christ in America to gather most times on Wednesday nights for a period of intensive Bible study. And I think that's right. I think you could build the case from passages like 2 Timothy 2.15, which tell us to study, but not only those. Colossians 4.16 and 1 Thessalonians 5.27, those passages teach that the letters that Paul wrote were to be read before the gathered assembly. And they would not only be read, but no doubt they would be expounded upon and taught. And to gather together for an intensive time of Bible study is a right thing to do. 
And sometimes on a Wednesday night or on a Sunday night or maybe even on a Friday night, we'll gather together and we'll do so to sing, not only to praise God, but also to rehearse old songs and to learn new ones. And that's right. Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 must not be regulated merely to the Sunday assembly. We can teach and admonish through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs anytime we choose. But if those things are right, and they are, shouldn't we have designated and dedicated times when we gather together as the people of God for prayer? I find it interesting that though Peter was in prison, when he broke out of prison, he not only went to Mary's house, but he knew to go there. Why did he know to do that? Why did he know in time of crisis and difficulty, this is where the prayer meeting is? The question for us would be, if such happened in our day, would our people know where to go? Oh, this is where the Christians just gather. This is what we do. This is who we always are. I don't know what happened to prayer meetings, but I know the need for such has not ceased. And we may do that in various ways and to varying degrees. I'm just saying we should give it some thought because the early Christians practiced prayer consistently. If we would pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, we must first get started. Don't you agree? They pray consistently. They prayed bold prayers to God, trusting that God was able to help and that God was able to intervene on their behalf It was through their powerful prayers as they reached up to God. And imagine these early Christians learning how to pray all over again. These men that had grown up as Jews for the first time in their lives, now they're praying not as they had always prayed to God, but with Jesus as their mediator and through and in the name of Jesus. And they realized when all is wrong with the world, you'll find us praying to our God. It was 1962, and his name was Stephen Engel. The case in the Supreme Court is called the Engel versus Vital case of 1962. It's where the Supreme Court outlawed prayer in public schools. They claimed that it violated the establishment clause of the First Amendment. Engel was a Jewish man. And at that time, there was supposedly in a lot of places what you might call these textbook prayers that were prayed normally by a teacher or principal in schools throughout this country. And Engel and a few others got together and they said, you know what? We shouldn't have this. This should not be the case because it may infringe upon somebody else's religious beliefs or what they think. And we should just do away with it. He took it all the way to the Supreme Court and he and his companions, they won. And Christians have been up in arms ever since. Why would you take prayer out of schools? Don't you think it's a good idea to start the day by talking to God? Could there be anything wrong with lifting up prayers to God? And we might be able to make a case for that biblically. But what if the first century Christians stare up the hallways of history at us and they say, why have these folks taken prayer out of the church? Don't they know it's how we conquered Rome? Don't they know it was our spiritual secret weapon? Why would they stop doing it? Why would they rush through it? Why would they just sort of skip through it and go through the motions? It's through prayer that we overcame the Romans. Don't they know what we used and how we did it? It was through their prayers. They prayed powerfully and boldly. They continued steadfastly in prayer. And if we would turn our world upside down, we must preach the gospel, never change it. And we must give ourselves over to powerful prayer. They believe that made a difference. They believe that God heard them when they prayed. And we know that he did. Here's number three. How did the early church turn the world upside down? They preached the gospel. They practiced these powerful prayers. But the third thing the early church did was they had a perpetual boldness. Would you turn your Bible to Acts chapter four? The early church had a perpetual boldness. They were continually bold no matter what they faced. 
They were courageous. They couldn't be stopped. In Acts chapter 4, this word appears several times. You can underline these, you can mark these, but I just want you to get a sense of how important this was for the early church to go about their business. They would not be silenced. They were often beaten and threatened and stoned, and yet they not only rose for the next round every time the bell rung, but more than that, they did so with boldness, and it caught the attention even of their adversaries. Would you notice Acts chapter 4 and verse 13? After Peter says in verse 12, there's salvation and no other. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Verse 13 says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they realized that they were ignorant and unlearned men, they realized that they had been with Jesus. Verse 13, they saw the boldness of Peter and John. You know what they said when they saw that? We have not seen boldness like this since Jesus the Nazarene, but that's not all. When they were persecuted in Acts chapter 4, verse 29 says they don't pray to God for an easier mission field. They don't pray for times to change on their behalf. They say, Lord, grant to your servants that with all boldness we may speak your word. And guess what happened when they prayed that prayer in verse 29? God answered it. You can just draw a line in your Bible from verse 29 down to verse 31 because verse 31 says after they prayed that prayer, they went out and proclaimed the word of God with boldness. God blessed them with it because they petitioned him for it. In fact, the book of Acts ends with this very thought. In Acts chapter 28 and verse 31, Paul is in prison on house arrest for two years. And Luke says the last thing about Paul that he tells us is that he was in the house in Rome and he was preaching the word of God with all boldness. No man forbidding him. The early Christians were bold in their proclamation. What do we mean when we say someone has told a bold-faced lie? Sometimes in old English used to be called a bald-faced lie. What is a bold-faced lie? It's little Johnny coming out of the kitchen with the chocolate milk on his face and his shirt. And somebody says, who drank the chocolate milk? And Johnny says, not me. Right. It's just blatant. It's in your face. It's unapologetic. It's I know you know the truth, but I've made up a decision. This is what I'm going to say. It's a frank speech. It's disrespectful. That same idea, but in a positive light, is behind this word in the New Testament, often translated bold. The Greek word parousia. It's this idea of being frank and open speech. It's the same word in Hebrews 4.16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. The Hebrew writer is saying, come right out and say it. And when you read that word bold in the book of Acts, it's saying that these men were not reserved. They weren't afraid. They just came out frankly and told people the truth. They were bold. They were courageous. And they turned their world upside down because of it. They weren't afraid. People had never heard anything like it. When they told them, you stop preaching in this name, they just kept doing it. Acts 5.29, we ought to obey God rather than men. Maybe you heard the reports in August of 2021 when there was upheaval in Afghanistan. There were reports that came out that those individuals that were responsible for the terrorism, they started sending notices to churches, to churches everywhere. Anybody who claimed any allegiance to Jesus Christ, not just the New Testament church, though there was some there, they would send them out everywhere. And here's what they were saying to the Christians. They were saying, we know who you are. We know what you're doing. And we will find you. That type of threatening was not uncommon in the first century. But it seems as if the early Christians took Jesus serious when he said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear them. Do not be afraid of them that can destroy the body. But after that, have nothing they can do. Rather fear him who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And they were bold and they were fearless. 
And they preach Christ. What can you do with people when after you beat them and you tell them, we don't want to hear anything else about this, and they get up and preach again? What can you do to people who, when you tell them, we don't want to hear anything else about Jesus Christ, and they're not afraid of you, when all you can do is kill them, but then that would ultimately be a promotion to the eternity that they've been living for their entire lives. What can you do with people like that? The answer is nothing. They told the Christians, do not preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And the Christians essentially in the book of Acts had three words for them. See you tomorrow. They preached and they were bold. We need that. We are living in a time right now where the world is saying we don't want to hear about Christianity. And if we do hear about it, we want it to be so vague and so vanilla that nobody would be able to tell the difference between Christianity or any other religion. We just don't want to hear from you. We might be tempted to say, you know what? I will not fall away. I will assemble in gatherings like this and I'm going to be a faithful member in the local congregation. But out in the public square, I'm just not going to I don't want to I don't want to cause any problems. I won't say anything. And at the family gatherings, I'm always that person. And I, you know what? I'm just not going to say anything to the degree that we do that. We won't turn the world right side up. The early Christians knew that in order to be God's person, there has to be some boldness. There has to be some courage. Got to be courageous. Who would you say in the world right now? What category of people would you say in the world right now are bold individuals? Who would you think of? I know who I would think of. I would say the people right now in our world who are bold and courageous is the secularist. It's the atheist. It's the unbeliever. Not only are they unashamed of what they believe, but they will scream and shout you down until you see it their way. And they won't let you view it any other way, at least not without putting up a fight. And why we should not borrow their obnoxious spirit or the works of the flesh that they use to accomplish their deeds. We all could use a double dose of courage, which says I stand with Jesus Christ and I'm not ashamed of it. That's how the early church turned the world upside down. They made a difference in their world because they proclaimed the message of Jesus Christ unapologetically. And it made people look twice and it caused people to say, just maybe they're right about it. How do you turn the world upside down? It takes boldness. It takes a fearless spirit as a young person to say, I'm going to live for Jesus Christ. I'm going to believe the things of the New Testament and I don't plan to change. As you begin to grow up, it means holding fast to the moorings of Christianity and delving deeper into the Bible, not to find new truths, not to find things you've never seen before, but to be reassured of the things that have always been true and holding firm to those things fully until the end. But then not keeping those things to yourself, but going out and saying, how many people can I share this message with? Because the rest of the world needs to hear it as well. Now, here's number four. How did the early church turn the world upside down? They practice the radical love. Turn your Bible to Acts chapter two. And maybe sometimes we might misunderstand this about Christianity. But let me say, in the first century world, the Christians were not the only group of people that loved one another. There were other people that practiced love. They weren't the first ones. They didn't invent love. But in the first century world, people only loved their own. Now, that was the difference. The Jews, they loved Jewish folks. And the Romans, they loved the strong and those that could do for themselves. But Christians were different. You remember what Jesus taught. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one toward another. And Christians practice this in a way unparalleled in their times. And so Acts chapter 2 
Verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. They sold their possessions and their goods, and they departed them to everyone as each individual had need. In Acts chapter 6, when there was this need for benevolence among the widows, they got together and they said, we're going to help them. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, Luke says they were all of one soul and no one said anything that he possessed was his own, but they sold it and they shared it with other people because they were Christians. But don't get the wrong idea about these Christians because it wasn't just the case that they did it for their own. They would do it for others. When we read of the miracles in the book of Acts, for example, the healing of the lame man in Acts chapter 3. Or the man at Lystra in Acts 14, it's true that a miraculous deed is being performed. That's right. But when the Holy Spirit sees fit to put these parameters around the miracle, this person has been in this condition since the time he was born. What is that designed to say? It's designed to say he's been in this condition and no one else was going to help him or do anything else until the Christian showed up. Yes, it's designed to highlight the miraculous, but more than that is to say, would you notice this good deed that went undone throughout the entirety of his life? No one else could do anything about it. The Christians could, and they did. It's what Dorcas does in Acts chapter 9. as She makes the coats and the deeds for the widows, Acts 9, 36 through 43. It's Paul after he's been battered and bruised through shipwreck in Acts 28, and he gets to the island of Miletus, and Publius' father is there, Acts 28, 7 through 10, And he lays hands on the man and he prays for him to get better. They loved everybody. And it made a difference in their world. It'll make a difference in ours. Right now, everybody is so tensed, ready to be upset and fly off the handle for just about any reason or anything. We're just looking for who's the next person to be mad or to be outraged about something. And Christians, we can turn the world upside down if we would just really buy in and practice the radical love that the New Testament calls us to. When somebody says this person or this group of people, they are radical Muslims. What do you think about a radical Muslim? Why do we put that that statement, that that prefix on a radical Muslim, however small or large you believe that group to be? What does that mean to you? It means that that person, he or she takes the tenets of the Quran seriously. They read it and they practice it just as it's written. They don't add anything or change. If it says kill their enemies, if they think you're an enemy, that's what they intend to do. We would say about radical Muslims, they take the teachings literally. They don't plan to read anything poetic into them. They just do it full out. And while we would disagree with their methods, what would a radical Christian look like? Somebody who read the New Testament and then went out and practiced things just like Jesus said that we should without any apology, without any modification. What would it look like if somebody just picked up Matthew and read straight through Revelation and said, I want to do what Jesus says. Radical means different. It means above the norm. It means aiming for the target. Radical love for Christians would mean several things. Do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. Just look for opportunities. And when you see it, Galatians 6 and verse 10, you just do it. You don't talk yourself out of it because that can happen. You say, well, I don't have time for this. Or surely somebody else will do it. You know, most times what everybody knows needs to be done isn't done. And people that are closest up on situations often don't act. Don't give yourself permission to be talked out of doing good. Just do good. Radical love means telling people the truth that no one else will tell them. If you really love people, it doesn't mean that you accept everything. But you tell them the truth that nobody else will. 
Ephesians 4.15 says, speaking the truth in love. Catch the first part of that, speaking it. You have to say it. They won't catch it like they catch a cold. You have to say it to them. Speaking the truth in love and doing it the way that God says. Never stand up for Jesus by being unlike him. 2 Timothy 2.24-26 says, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all people, able to teach, patient, and in meekness, instructing those that are of the opposition that they might recover themselves out of the snare of the devil that are taken captive by him at his will. Tell them the truth nobody else will. Practicing love like Jesus would have us to means we're more concerned with giving than getting. Acts 20 and verse 35 says, it is more blessed to give than to receive, and you don't understand that until you've done it. The more you give, you just see it's a bless. Jesus didn't say you'll be more blessed if you give than if you receive. He just says it's more blessed to do it. And our love will show when we do. Radical love means you refuse to retaliate. Passages like Romans 12, 19 through 21 don't mean as much to you until you really have been wronged. You can read those passages your whole life and you think, well, I know that. You don't do anything wrong and you don't hit anybody back. We teach kids that. But when you really have been wronged and mistreated, then you might try a new hermeneutic on Romans 12, 19 through 21. Paul says you don't get to do that. He doesn't say that they won't get theirs. He says, you leave place for vengeance because God always gets it right. And you don't want to be hit accidentally when God comes in to administer the justice. You leave place for wrath. You pray for your enemies. Matthew 5 and verse 44. The early Christians did this and they turned the world upside down. People had never seen anything like it. There were Jews and Gentiles, slaves and masters. Rich and poor, all in this assembly together. And you would ask what they did. What on earth do these people have in common? Not everything, just the most important thing. And they loved one another. Changed their world. The Jews said we love our own. The Romans said we love the strong. If a man is too weak to make it on his own, he deserves to die. And the Christians said every life has value. We want them to know the gospel and we want them to know God. And we're going to do it by loving them and being the people that God would have us to be. It changed their world. I'm telling you, don't let the world talk us out of love. They may try to redefine it, but it's not their word. Let's not eventually take on their tactics and become like those that we despise. I know we say, well, there's the secular opposition to Christianity and we've got to stand up against it. We do. But love is not a soft defense. It's the strongest defense that we can possibly muster because it's the defense of Jesus Christ. A love people have never seen. Just read the New Testament and do what it says. And we can turn the world upside down. Here's the fifth and final one tonight. How did the early church turn the world upside down? They placed their hope in God. When you read throughout the book of Acts, Paul is often put on trial, especially beginning in Acts 22. But go ahead and turn to Acts 23. And, you know, Paul could have said a lot of things about why he was a Christian and why he did what he did. But it appears to me that his favorite response for why he practiced his religion, why he became a Christian, and why he changed the way that he had previously lived is often these words, because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, or because I have hope in Jesus Christ. That's why I'm standing before you on trial. That's what he says in Acts 23 and verse 6. When he saw that there were some Sadducees and some Pharisees present, he said, with hope of the resurrection of the dead, I stand on trial this day. He believed that. In Acts 24, Acts 24 and verse 15, he says a similar thing. 
He says, with respect to the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you. And when he finally makes it to Rome, In Acts chapter 28 and verse 20, he gathers all the Jews together and they want to know who are you and what are you doing here? And in Acts 28 and verse 20, Paul says, for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. The way the early Christians turned their world upside down and what we can do in Huntsville and back in Bowling Green where I preach is retain our hope in God. What does that mean? It means whenever we speak of our treasures, whenever we speak of what matters most to us, we are always pointing toward the clouds and beyond them. You see, they believed this world was not their home. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. They believed that the best for Christians was yet to come, and they were able to live out their faith because of that. Their hope was not in this world. And you know what that meant? The world could throw everything at them, and it couldn't hurt them because they weren't meant to stay here. Sports commentators talk about this. They'll say, well, this team has what it takes to go to the championship, but I don't know if they can win on the road. You know what happens when you play away games. The crowd's against you, no familiar faces. Normally the weather's a little bit different. And when they start talking, whether it's basketball or football or baseball, if they start talking about whether a team can go the distance, they say, I wonder, they're great at home. I wonder if they can win on the road. Listen, if you're a Christian, we don't have any home games here. We don't have any. And so what we have to do is learn how to play on the road. It's the only games we play And we need to learn how to, the early Christians, they knew that. They knew that they were always behind enemy lines. We sing the song, this is my father's world, and it is by creation. But it's the devil's world because of its corruption. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. And we must learn that our hope is not here. And they knew that, and they believed it. And there was nothing that their adversaries could do to change their minds about the best things being yet to come. And so they they could preach the gospel come what may. J.R. Tolkien wrote the Lord of the Rings books. He's a famous author. He was set to give a speech in 1938 at St. Andrews University on fairy stories. And in his essay, he said, humans are hopelessly drawn to fairy stories. There's nothing we can do about it. I know 1938 was a long time ago, but we really haven't graduated much from it. We read books like this. If you're into Marvel movies or whatever the case might be, people read those types of things. He said, you know why? There are five things that those stories and movies, fantasy, fiction, five things that the human heart longs for that we attempt to find in those stories. He said, number one, we want to escape time. He said, we want to escape time. We read about these people going off into a faraway land with no time. Number two, we want to escape death. You don't die when you go into these stories. Number three, we want to have fellowship with non-human beings. Whether we believe it's some type of animal or creature, we want fellowship with non-human beings. Number four, Token says, what we want is we want to see the ultimate good triumph over evil. We want the good guys to win. We want to see happily ever after. And then the fifth thing he says is we want a love from which we can never part. But you know what we do? We go to the movies. We buy the $30 popcorn. We walk out of the theater and we leave and we say, that was just a movie. We read the books, we get to the end and we close them and we say, we'll see you when you do a rerun in two years or we'll buy the next book in the series. But our hearts still long for it. But don't you know in Christianity, it's the only thing in the world, it's the only system in the world designed to give us those five things that our hearts ultimately long for. If you're a Christian, you will escape time. Paul says, we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 through 18. If you're a Christian, you will escape death. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. If a man believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. If a man believes in me, he will never really die. You will escape death. 
If you're a Christian, you will have fellowship with non-human beings. The Bible says we will be like him. We'll see him as he is. First John 3, 1 through 3. We will see Jesus face to face. Revelation 22 and verse 4. You will. You'll see the ultimate good triumph over evil. Peter writes, in our inheritance, it's incorruptible, it's undefiled, it fades not away, it's reserved in heaven for you. And fifth and finally, in that moment, though we've known a fraction of it here, when we finally get there and our hope is realized, we'll have a love from which we can never part. Paul says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, or powers, or things present, or things to come, or height, or depth, or any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, just because our hope is invisible does not mean that it's imaginary. It's true. We walk by faith and not by sight. Our hope is out of this world, but it is what helps us to maintain and live in this present world. It's not a fairy tale. Those are the facts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter and Paul, Stephanus and Aristarchus and countless others throughout the first century, they believed that. And that hope, they were saying to people that had heard from the Romans, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The Christians rushed in and said, that's not true. This life is not all there is. This is not it. This life is merely the introduction for your eternity. Don't waste your life. Live for then. Because it's far better, Philippians 1 and verse 23. Their hope in the resurrection and in dwelling with God for all eternity is what helped them to turn their world upside down. The Romans couldn't comprehend it. And the Jews could hardly stomach it, but the Christians believed it. And that's why today the Roman Empire, like all earthly empires, is in the ashes. But until the trumpet blows, there will be Christians that hold fast to these principles. Our world is changing. And sometimes Christians can be discouraged about that and say, you know, it's changing faster than we ever could expect. I'm raising children in this world. It's different. But we've got the same ingredients they had. Would you notice tonight that none of the five things I said involved the miraculous? No, the miraculous helped. It aided, but it was not ultimately, it was the scaffolding on the building, but it wasn't what God ultimately used to change the world. And we can do it tonight. In our own little corner of the world, if we would practice these things, preach the gospel, pray boldly, have a perpetual boldness about us, ourselves, practice a radical love and place our hope in God. We'll be the fearless people that God wants us to be. And at least where we have occupied a little space and time, the historians may say when our day is long gone, those Christians have turned the world upside down. We extend the same invitation that Christians have been extending for 2000 years. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Turn from your sins and based on your confession, be immersed in water. When you do that, you'll rise from the waters. You'll be a new creature. Much on earth will look the same, but everything in heaven will be different. And You'll have a new hope. You'll have a hope that allows you to sustain through all the hardships and difficulties that are inevitable in this life. But then you'll realize you're not living for this world. You're living for the world to come. If you're a Christian, hold firm. Someone has said Christians are the smartest people in the world. We give up things we cannot keep in order to lay hold on things that we cannot lose. Christians have been gathering together to pray for and with one another for almost 2,000 years. And maybe it's the case tonight that you need the prayers of the church. It will make a difference. If we can help you in any way, if this is your invitation, why don't you come now as together we stand and as we sing.
We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.